Episode 23, The Java and the Coral Seas. He pitched into a sharp dive. Above him, devastators danced with zeros. Something flew so close it almost clipped his wing. He banked. It was a zero, pursued by an American fighter. He could see the devastator's tracer inch closer to the zero's tail. He tore his gaze away. He looked down into the perfect blue of the ocean and at the long grey shape below. 20 seconds. 20 seconds until he was close enough to release his bomb. His whole life narrowed to those 20 seconds. Nothing else existed. Nothing else was real. Black smoke exploded alongside the cockpit. He weaved through clouds of flak bursting all around him. Behind him, his tail gunner hammered away at a target he couldn't even see. They were committed to the dive. He would trust to his gunner and just pray whatever he was shooting at wouldn't follow them down. 5,000 feet, just a few more seconds. The carrier was coming up fast. The ocean was racing towards them like some great anvil. If he was off by just a few seconds, they would smash into it at over 200 miles an hour. His palms began to sweat. 3,000 feet. He could make out the structure of the flight deck, see the crest of the waves. 2,500 feet. 2,000 feet. 1,500 feet. This was it. It was now or never. He thumbed the bomb release. Back on the USS Lexington, they huddled around the radio. They could hear the sounds of the action. Radio chatter coming through. They'd just heard one of their dauntlesses plunge into a dive. But then there was a burst of static. The room was tense. No one said a word. Everyone leaned in, trying to hear something through the noise. Did he make it? Then a message came through, strong and clear. Scratch one flat top. Dixon to carrier. Scratch one flat top. The Lexington shook with the sound of cheers. Welcome to the finest half hour. Read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. Today we move to the naval war in the Pacific. From the Allies' first major engagement in the Java Sea to the first naval battle fought at such range that the two opposing fleets never came within sight of each other. The Battle of the Coral Sea. We're going to witness the first halting steps in the attempt to wrest control of the Pacific Ocean from the Imperial Navy's hands. After last episode's disaster with the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, the Allied position in the Pacific was beginning to look desperate. The American fleet was still under repairs and no British capital ships sailed what Magellan had once dubbed the Peaceful Sea. Perhaps more importantly, though, it caused naval strategists around the globe to rethink. The time of the battleship was over. Aircraft now ruled the seas. Even those holdouts, who disposed the dominance of the battleship right through the start of the war, had recognised that power in the Pacific would be defined by the number of carriers each side could field, rather than how many great-gunned battleships they could put to sea. Moreover, the importance of the tiny islands that dotted the Pacific started to become clear. 
Any tract of land big enough to put an airfield upon became an unsinkable carrier that could project power around it as far as its planes could fly. Places that the world had taken little notice of before became strategic objectives for the first time in history. Places like Midway, Guadalcanal and Atu. But before we can get to any of those, we first have to discuss the Dutch East Indies. Making up roughly the area we know today as Indonesia, the Dutch East Indies were the jewel of the Dutch Overseas Empire, and they were the key to Japanese imperial ambitions. Containing both rubber and the oil that Japan so desperately needed, they were a key target for invasion. On the 27th of February 1942, the Allies scraped together a hodgepodge of old American, British, Dutch and Australian ships to intercept the Japanese troop transports steaming towards the islands in order to put a stop to the invasion once and for all. February the 27th, 1942. Bright flashes illuminate the darkness. The silhouettes of ships move like ghosts in the night disappearing between each fusillade, only to appear again when the mighty guns fire. Gouts of water leap from the sea where the shells fall, but for all their fury they are harmless, sinking into the vast ocean far from any of the ships. Then there's a light that is like a new dawn, and with that light, fire. Fire all along the flagship, painting the waves red. Shells explode within its belly. Men scream. Some run, flinging themselves over railings, off the side, into the deep, dark sea. But the flames show one figure, still in his admiral's finery, standing calmly on the deck. Then the ship is lost in a cloud of steam, fires quenched by the consuming waves. The Allied forces faced a dilemma. They came from four different navies. They had never worked together in a combat situation, had different languages, different organisational structures and styles of command. But most concerning of all, they had different objectives. American sailors wanted to avenge Pearl Harbour, while British command wanted to keep the Japanese away from Singapore. The Australians, meanwhile, were most concerned with protecting their homeland, which was only a short hop away, and the Dutch wanted to defend their colonial possessions, which even now were being overrun. The ad hoc fleet was led by a Dutch rear admiral though, and so, when the Japanese were spotted in the Java Sea right near the Dutch East Indies, the decision was made without hesitation. They would attack. Their primary target would be the Japanese troop transports, not the fleet escorting them, for if they could sink them, the invasion of the Dutch colonies would have to be called off. But to get to those transports, they'd have to find some way around, or through, the Japanese fleet. In the late afternoon on February the 27th, the two flotillas came into contact. At first glance, they looked evenly matched, but the Japanese ships are of a newer design and are outfitted with the Japanese Long Lance Heavy Torpedo. Still, the ships engage. At long range, the fleets do almost no damage to one another, 
but then they close. The Japanese admiral orders his destroyers forward to keep the Allied fleet from manoeuvring and getting at the transports. In the ensuing exchange, one of the two Allied heavy cruisers is hit. Six of its boilers burst. It veers away from the battle, limping back towards safety. Other Allied ships follow it, thinking it's acting under orders from the Dutch rear admiral commanding the squadron. The Dutch admiral, though, is totally unaware of this and charges forward with the Dutch contingent of the fleet. Realising his error at the last minute, he orders his ships to fall back but the Japanese flood the water with torpedoes. Luckily, only one hits, but the heavy Japanese torpedo cracks one of the Dutch destroyers clean in two, sending it to the bottom instantly. Australian ships rush forward and provide a smokescreen while the fleet regroups. The Japanese think the Allied forces are withdrawing and start back on their route but the British destroyers come charging out of the smoke, guns blazing. They damage a Japanese destroyer, but they get the worst of the exchange, losing one of their destroyers entirely. Now the American destroyers race forward to cover them. Another smokescreen goes up. The four aging American destroyers fire all of their torpedoes, but the range is too great and they sail harmlessly through the water. The fleets lose contact with one another, but Allied forces are not done. Even though they've suffered more losses than the Japanese thus far, the Dutch Admiral is still determined to sink the Japanese transports. They manoeuvre in an attempt to get around the opposing fleet, but they are spotted by Japanese scout planes. Another exchange occurs with no real damage, but at this point the four old American destroyers have to withdraw. They're out of ammunition and low on fuel. Suddenly, out of nowhere, one of the British destroyers explodes. It wandered into an Allied minefield off the Java coast. Down to just four vessels, the Dutch Admiral decides to make one last attempt at fulfilling his mission. They'll sneak around the Japanese under the cover of night. But again they're spotted. This time, the full power of the Japanese heavy cruisers can be brought to bear. Even though the naval gunnery is fairly ineffective at night, the Japanese torpedoes strike home. Two of the three Allied light cruisers are sunk, including the Dutch Admiral's flagship. The rest of the Allied forces withdraw. Then, the remaining Allied heavy cruiser and light cruiser make a miraculous find. They stumble upon the transport ship's anchor. They race in, but the rest of the Japanese fleet is near at hand, and both ships are sunk in the exchange. The heavy cruiser that was wounded early in the day tries to limp to safety a few days later, but is sunk, along with her escort. Japanese bombers pick off the Dutch destroyers as they try to escape Java before it's overrun. Only the four nearly obsolete American destroyers escape and make it safely to Australia. The Allies lost two heavy cruisers, three light cruisers and five destroyers and failed to sink a single Japanese ship. It was a disaster. May the 4th to May the 7th, 1942. He looked down at his fuel gauge and then tapped the glass. They were low. 
They'd be pushing the red line by the time they got back to their carrier. One more look below the clouds, and then they had to go. He told his crew, and began to descend. For a moment, mist surrounded them. Then they broke through, and... nothing. Just a flat expanse of unbroken blue. With the utter collapse of Allied naval forces in the Java Sea, the South Pacific was wide open. Japanese ambitions grew. They might be able to cut off Australia from the United States entirely. If they could capture Tulagi and Port Moresby, they'd have air cover for operations targeting the islands to the west of Australia, and even be able to strike at the Australian mainland, stopping any shipping passing that way. With this in mind, they drew up invasion plans. A force would be sent, supported by two carriers, to take the islands. In a series of complex manoeuvres, the carriers would break off to the east and provide air cover for the forces taking Tulagi as the main invasion force headed west for operations against Port Moresby. And then, just as the invasion fleet came within range of airstrikes from Australia, the carriers would sink back up with them and provide them with a fighter shield all the way to the second invasion target. The Japanese expected opposition to be light. American carriers in the Pacific were far away. The whole operation was to be over and done before the Americans could even get there to oppose it. But the folks working on magic in the US and the team at Bletchley Park decrypted enough messages about the operation to give the Americans a reasonably good picture of the plan. Immediately, orders were given to intercept this force. But even with the Allies having the benefit of this early warning, the Japanese weren't totally wrong. Most of the American carriers were too far away. The Yorktown and the Lexington alone could get there in time to fend off the invasion. After rendezvousing in the Coral Sea on May the 4th, the carriers began their search. The Japanese could be anywhere within an area stretching for thousands of square miles. But luck was with the Americans. They spotted the Japanese invasion fleet, still anchored off Tulagi. The Lexington, however, was low on fuel, from racing to join the fight. So the Yorktown broke off to attack the forces at Tulagi, while the Lexington refueled at sea. Surprise was total. The Japanese were barely able to fight back, and yet damage was light. A few destroyers and minesweepers were hit, but the US forces didn't inflict the type of losses that would cripple the invasion fleet. And, of course, the element of surprise can only be used once. The Japanese now knew that American carriers were in the area. The Japanese carriers, Shokaku and Suikaku, now began a hunt of their own. They sent out their scout planes and flying boats. Then, late on the 6th, they got a sighting. The American carriers were due south of them, but the Japanese carriers were in the middle of refueling. Last light is almost upon them. The Japanese admiral has to make a decision. Stop the refuel and engage the enemy with almost no reserves or call off the search for the night and try to catch the enemy tomorrow. He opts for the latter. Though little did he know that the American carriers, 
a mere 70 miles away from him, were totally unprepared for an attack. After the operation at Tulagi, the Lexington had met up again with the Yorktown and refuelled, and then sent their oil tanker and its destroyer escort to a safe spot in the middle of the ocean, while they went to look for the Japanese carriers. They thought the Japanese were to the northwest, so they had been heading west, in reality leaving the Japanese fleet right on their flank. So if the Japanese had pursued them on the night of the 6th, they might have caught them during their refuelling, and since all of their search efforts were far to the northwest, it's unlikely they would have even been spotted. The next day, though, the search continued. The Americans still had no idea where the Japanese were, and so were still searching the area between the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea, where the Japanese very much weren't. But the Japanese, based on the previous night's spotting, had a good idea of where the Americans had been heading. So they sent their planes southwest to find the American fleet. Then, just for good measure, the Japanese Admiral sent scouts south as well, in order to make sure they weren't surprised in the unlikely event that the Americans had somehow gotten on their flank. At seven in the morning, one of the Japanese scout planes radioed in a sighting. They'd spotted a carrier and cruiser due south of the fleet. This made no sense. It couldn't be. That wasn't where the Americans should be at all. Then, a few minutes later, another of the scout planes heading south radioed in and confirmed the sighting. That was it. This is what they'd been waiting for. The Japanese Admiral ordered the carriers to be turned in pursuit and ordered most of his air fleet to scramble. 78 planes raced towards the American carrier. They were only up in the air for minutes when another sighting was reported, this time over a 100 miles to the northwest, where they should be. What was going on? Despite the confusion, the attack would press on. The air fleet was operating under radio silence, no need to break it. But all that the scores of Japanese bombers found was the American refueling ship and the destroyer that had been sent to wait safely in the middle of the sea. Both Japanese scouts had misidentified these as a carrier and a cruiser. The Japanese had thrown all their power at an oiler and a single destroyer. By the time the planes got back, it was too late for another attack that day. Meanwhile, the Americans nearly mirrored the Japanese fleet's mistake. They'd once again sent their scouts to the northwest. This time, though, they found something. In the early morning, one of their search planes reported a sighting of two carriers and four cruisers. That was all they needed to hear. 93 planes leapt from the decks of the American carriers to take on the foe. But when the scout who reported the sighting returned, he was utterly confused. He hadn't reported any carriers. Something was up. His plane was inspected. Then they found it. His coding device was defective. When he'd punched in the signal for two cruisers and two destroyers, it had transmitted four cruisers and two carriers. Within striking distance of each other, both fleets had managed to launch their bombers the wrong way. But like the Japanese, the Americans decided not to call off the attack. Luck was with them. The Japanese had let the invasion convoy press on 
even though the carriers that were supposed to be covering them were now massively delayed. The Americans had found the forces that were supposed to attack Port Moresby. The Japanese light carrier Shoho and a handful of cruisers were all they had to protect them. The weather was perfect, crystal clear, you could see for miles. Perfect weather for bombing. The 12 fighters aboard Shoho never stood a chance. Dive bombers plummeted towards the ship, igniting her deck. Torpedo bombers scored hit after hit, cracking her hull, until finally, one of the dive bombers radioed back the famous message. Scratch one flat top. The Shoho sank shortly before noon. For the first time in the war, the Americans had sunk a Japanese carrier. But the action wasn't over for the day. The Japanese pilots, exhausted, just back from seven hours spent looking for the American ships in the wrong place, were ordered to suit up again and get back out there. They now knew where the US fleet should be. So they flew at dusk into terrible weather. Visibility was so poor they couldn't see a thing. But they were spotted by American radar. A trap was set. Fighters soared off the Yorktown and the Lexington to engage. Nine Japanese planes were shot down before they were lost in the clouds. The Japanese didn't realize they had passed right over the American carriers though and kept going. When at the limit of their fuel, they ditched their bombs to lighten their load and began to head back to the Japanese fleet. Just then, they spotted the Lexington and the Yorktown, but they had no bombs as they dropped them harmlessly into the sea. Then in one of the oddest incidents in the war, a group of Japanese aircraft, pilots tired from their back-to-back -back missions and lost in the dark of the night, tried to land on one of the American carriers. What a shock it must have been for them to find their return home greeted with anti-aircraft fire trying to drive them away. Still for all the chaos, the Japanese were down only one light carrier and the Americans a destroyer and a fuel ship. The main event was yet to come. May the 8th, 1942. Remember the folks back home are counting on us. I am going to get a hit if I have to lay it on their flight deck. With those words, Lieutenant John J. Powers ended his briefing to his men. For the last four days, they had been in every action. He had strafed a gunboat at Tulagi and had personally planted a bomb right in the centre of the Shoho. But everyone in the room knew this was going to be their hardest mission yet. They were going after one of the most important ships in the Japanese Navy. They were going after a fleet carrier. The minutes seemed to stretch on for hours as they flew through thick clouds. Then, there, through the break in the weather, a thick grey rectangle upon the sea. It could only be one thing. He ordered the dive. 18,000 metres. They plunged through the clouds, vapour trailing off their wings. 15,000 metres. They could see a dogfight happening below. 12,000 metres. They were in the thick of it. Zeros were flying close. A groom and wildcat exploded so close to them, he thought he could feel the heat. One plane chased another, tracers licking at his tail. He didn't have time to see which was the American. 9,000 metres. 
something hit a member of his squadron. Their tail burst into flames and they pirouetted down into the sea. 6,000 meters. Flak was starting to get hot. Tracers all around. Another plane went burning into the waves. 3,000 meters. Some of the crews were beginning to drop their bombs. They were scared, wanting to pull up. They weren't going to hit anything from here. 2,000 meters. The world was a massive gray smoke and tracers. Someone screamed. Was it him? Was it his gunner? One of them was hit. No time. Have to finish the dive. 1,000 meters. The last remaining members of his squadron dropped their bombs and pulled up. For less than a second, he let his mind wander to wishing them well. 500 meters. Flak was shredding their plane, eating into the superstructure. It was shaking like the last leaves of autumn in a gale. He could make out people on the flight deck now. 200 meters. He was right above the flight deck. He could see them, looking at him, running in panic. But it was all a blur. He released his bomb and jerked hard on the stick. He began to ascend. Then he looked back. He'd laid one right on the flight deck, he thought. Moments before the blast from his thousand-pound bomb engulfed his plane. Both fleets knew roughly where the other one was. There would be no mistakes this time. Early on the 8th, scouts from both sides spotted their targets. All four carriers launched every bomber they could get into the air. The Japanese attackers hurtled towards their targets, whilst American attackers raced towards theirs. Almost simultaneously, they struck. But the winds had changed. This time, it was the Japanese fleet that was covered by the clouds. Only the Shikaku was visible, so it became the sole target of the American assault. The first seven bombers missed. Then, 17 dive bombers plunged towards it, but only managed to get a single hit. That's when Lieutenant Powers famously took his final run on the carrier, his payload causing massive damage to the flight deck. Then came the torpedo bombers, but they couldn't score a single hit. Next, the planes from the Lexington, who had trailed behind, came to make their run on the ship, but nearly a third of them got lost in the bad weather and never made it there at all. Their dive bombers scored a single hit, and, again, every single torpedo bomber missed. The Shikaku, while damaged, was far from sunk. The Japanese, on the other hand, managed to strike home. While at first the Lexington wove between enemy torpedoes, in the end, two ploughed into her port side and two more bombs exploded on her deck. Damage control crews worked furiously to keep her in the action and Lexington stayed in the fight. Meanwhile, the Yorktown was only hit once, but the 500-pound bomb that hit her managed to plunge through six of her decks before exploding in the belly of the ship. At this point, both sides decided they'd had enough. The Japanese had one badly damaged carrier and had lost a lot of their flight crews, as often from running out of fuel and having to ditch in the middle of the ocean as from being actually shot down. While the Americans had two badly damaged carriers, 
both American carriers turned back to lick their wounds. But as the Lexington began to limp home, suddenly an explosion rocked the ship. Then another. Somewhere, deep in the ship, the damage from the day's fighting had cracked a gas tank. Volatile vapour had escaped and built up below decks until something set it off. Fire started to break out. Everywhere, crew scrambled to save the ship, but she was lost. At last, the abandoned ship was called. The carrier was doomed, but its crew wasn't. The evacuation was orderly, almost genial. Some men broke into the ship's freezer and filled their helmets with ice cream to share with the crew, while they all waited to go overboard. Nearly all of the crew members who hadn't been killed in the battle or the subsequent explosions were saved. But one of the four American aircraft carriers in the Pacific was forever lost. On the surface, the Battle of the Coral Sea looked like a solid victory for the Japanese. But it forced them to call off the attack on Port Moresby. For the first time since the start of the war, American forces had halted Japanese expansion. Australia was safe. And then, there was the question of replacements. America could replace ships and planes at a speed the Japanese could not. It would be quite some time before the Shikaku would see service again. And the Zuikaku had lost so many planes that it too ceased to be a threat for the immediate future. So, though the Japanese won the day, the effects of the Battle of the Coral Sea on the war as a whole had yet to be determined. For that we'll have to wait until next week. And the Battle of Midway. 